we exist as Baraka Bible Church, I hope you know this by now, to glorify God by making disciples of Christ at home and abroad. That's our purpose statement, our mission statement. Um, as we often say, that's not something that comes from us. That's not something that just is the uh, fruit of some strategic planning weekend or something like that that the elders had. No, that, that is something that came to us from the Lord. Uh, I'm not talking about in some, you know, auditory vocalized way but we are this is what the scriptures tell us we are all on mission with Christ for the glory of God this is who we are we are sent we are sent people we are a sent church that's that's our identity we have this distinct and definite you could say missionary identity we we have to we have to understand our identity before we can begin to talk about our activity and so we as we walk through Acts, and as we talked about last week, and anticipating this, we we we, we do we want this we want activity to grow from this, but that that's got to come from our understanding of who we actually are in Christ. The hope with this series isn't just to kind of prod us to get busier, to to do some you know missionary projects, to 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 have a lot of evangelistic stuff going on. That's not the sum total of it. The hope is that we'll see our lives more accurately, who we truly are our lives together, that we'll see ourselves as being held by God in the very good and gracious grip of the Great Commission. Make disciples. Be His witnesses. And so our, our whole existence as believers, as a church, is to be defined, it's to be explained by this charge. That's, that's significant, isn't it? And so none of us are exempt from this. None of us are exempt from this missionary mandate. Now, does that make you tremble a little? I, I think it probably should. Does that make you feel a little bit underprepared? Well, if so, you can relate to the disciples as we meet them here in Acts chapter 1 because this is where we find Jesus' followers. This is where Jesus meets them. This is where Jesus meets us today as we launch into this study of the book of Acts. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to make a few introductory comments. I'm sort of spreading my introduction out over a few weeks here. But I want to just note a few things, because Acts, Acts is a very unique book in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. So Acts is written, as J.K. mentioned, by a Gentile, Dr. Luke, who was a physician and a historian. Along with Acts, these are the only two books that are written by a Gentile. So it's, it's unique in that way. Acts is also long, 28 chapters long. And so Luke and Acts are the two longest books in the New Testament. And so what we find in, in terms of word count, not chapters, but in terms of word count. So Luke, a Gentile, ends up writing essentially a quarter of the New Testament. That's a large chunk of the Bible that's written by Luke. Third, Things that make the book of Acts unique. Acts is a part two. Uh, and this is why I had J.K. start in Luke chapter one and read the ending of, Luke, of, of, the, of the gospel of Luke. Because when we get to Acts, we're looking at essentially Luke volume two. In fact, it, it, before the synoptic gospels, which would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were kind of put in the order that we find them in our copies of Scripture. That came later. But before that, Luke and Acts were always put together in Scripture. It would, it would be much like First and Second Kings or First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles. This, this is how Luke and Acts had been seen prior to that time. And so it's, it, is, it is definitely a part two. Fourth, Acts is history. It's, it's narrative. It's a story that's being told. It's rude. It's a story that's rooted in these eyewitness accounts, and so that will feature prominently. But it's, but it's not just history. It's theological history. It's it's interpreted history. It's designed to tell us something about God, to tell us what He's doing in this world. So it's history. It's theology told through story, and that's the form that it takes. I think fifth, uh, this no other book covers as much geographical territory. I and mean, we are all over the place, and we'll talk about how the, even the outline of the book from verse 8, but starting in Jerusalem to the ends of the known world at that time. So 
large geographical area that's covered in the book of Acts. Also, no other book references the Holy Spirit as much as Acts. And we're going to talk a lot about that starting this morning, but in the coming weeks and throughout our study. Uh, next, Acts is it's a hinge in the New Testament. It's a hinge. It, it's bridging, it's, it's connecting the events of the Gospels with the theology of the epistles. And so it serves as that, that, that connection point in our New Testament. Next, much, much of the content of Acts has no parallel elsewhere in the New Testament. And so as you read you know, some of the epistles that Paul writes, that you, you notice there's, there's a good bit of overlap. And so many times he's writing these letters at the same time while he's sitting in prison to these churches. And so many of them say very similar things. There's a very similar outline to them. Some of the exhortations are, are very similar. There's a lot of overlap. I mean, and you find the same thing in the gospel accounts. There's a, or these repeated accounts told through the different voices, human authors, but there's a lot of overlap. Now, but most of what we find in Acts isn't found anywhere else. So that's, that makes it very unique. I mean, without Acts, we would have no clue about Pentecost and the wind and the fire. We, without Acts, we wouldn't know anything about Peter's encounter with Cornelius. Without Acts, we wouldn't know about the church in Antioch, the growth of this multi-ethnic fellowship there in Antioch. Without Acts, we wouldn't know the story of Paul's visit to Philippi or Corinth or Ephesus or of Paul's trials in, in Jerusalem and, and Caesarea. And so there's many, many things we're going to see that this is the only place we find it. So it's really unique in that way. And then also, Acts, Acts, is, Acts is telling us of this new stage in history, this new stage in history. And what I mean is it's telling us about, we could say, post-incarnate Jesus life. What I mean is everything before Acts, canonically, in terms of how it comes to us in Scripture, everything before is either pre-Jesus or with Jesus. But, but in Acts, no longer are we as readers, no longer are the characters in Acts, no longer are you looking forward to the Messiah or actually walking around Galilee with the Messiah. But now we get to see what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be faithful to Jesus once He's physically gone. So this is the first, first window into that world. What are we supposed to do now that Jesus is, is physically absent from the earth? How, what resources do we have to do what we're supposed to do? How are we to respond to opposition? How do we live under the rule of a pagan nation as this marginalized community? So Acts is written in part to give some measure of assurance to, these, to this battered church just to say you're on the right path. You're on the right path. This is God's path that you're on. The, the, the bumpy start that we're going to read about in the book of Acts, it's not... It's not a detour to God's plan. It is God's plan. Like this, is, this is what He's intended. And so as the church faces opposition, faces setbacks, faces persecution and difficulties, that may not seem obvious. And so part of the purpose of Acts is to give some assurance to the church. And we'll see to us as well. And so you're going to see some common words as we study the book of Acts. There are going to be these words like, no and certainty, and, and fulfilled, and testimony, and proofs. He's, he's giving this assurance to us. This is God's plan A. And then the last thing I would just say that makes it unique, it's, it is the greatest, greatest missionary story ever told. It is, and it's the greatest missionary handbook that's ever been written. And, and what I mean, I'm not just talking about, as we think, missionaries in, vo in some vocational sense. But I mean, I'm talking about every Christian's calling that, that to give their life for this disciple-making mandate. This is, this is the, greatest, the greatest thing that's ever been written along those lines. So I'm excited as we launch into this series. If I could give you one summary sentence of what Acts is about, I would say it this way. Acts is about the ongoing mission of our triune God. 
And, and every one of those words is significant. We're, we're going to talk more about that next week. I'm going to unpack that a little bit uh, in my introduction next week and kind of show some of those emphases in the book of Acts. But Acts is about the ongoing mission of our triune God. And brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you are by grace folded into that plan as his witnesses. And that's a beautiful and powerful thing. We are First, we're beneficiaries of it. Because that's how the gospel came to us. But now we are ambassadors for it. And we are his witnesses. And so, again, I'll elaborate more on that uh, next week. I left this part on the cutting room floor last night as I was preparing because I knew I had way too much for today. And so this is, this is going to be bumped to the next week or two. But as we read just a moment ago, Acts, Acts picks up where... Luke left off. Well, technically, there is a, a little bit of overlap because both the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts record uh, Jesus' ascension, ascension. But when Acts opens, Jesus lived, suffered, died, and is risen. And He's there with His disciples, ministering to them. And so the cross and the empty tomb, they changed everything. Changed everything for these disciples, for human history, for us. And so what is... What does Luke now tell us about the resurrected Jesus in this opening of the book of Acts? He tells us several things. These are the four statements that we'll look at, so you don't have to write these down now. But one, the resurrected Jesus continues to minister to us. Secondly, He promises His presence with us. Third, He clarifies His mission for us. And, and, and fourth, He ascends to reign over us. So first, the resurrected Jesus continues His ministry to us. So Luke, Luke begins, verses 1 to 3, he begins his second volume again with these words. In the first book, the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have, now Theophilus, you may say, where, where, what do we know about this guy? We don't know anything about this guy. Uh, he, he, was, he may have been the one that kind of financially supported uh, the writing of these accounts. We're, we're really not sure. Um, but he writes to Theophilus and he says, I have dealt with, in the first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus, here's the word, began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so Luke's gospel account gave us, we can say, act one of Jesus' work. Now, here we find in the book of Acts, act two. This is what Jesus continued to do and teach. Now, again, the traditional title for the book of Acts in some of your Bibles, mine does, it says the Acts of the Apostles. That's kind of the traditional historical title for Acts. Others have called it Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, it's become more common recently to people talk about the Acts of Jesus Christ. I think all of those are fine. They all are true. But what I do want you to see is that 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 third possibility, it, 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 it is a possibility because that's what we're seeing. This is act two is what Jesus continues to do and teach, continue, how he continues to minister. There's one redemptive plan, one redemptive drama that unfolds in these two acts. There's one ministry of Jesus in these two stages, his earthly ministry and his heavenly continued heavenly ministry. So there's Jesus in sandals, and there's Jesus with a scepter. And, and so Jesus in Galilee, Jesus in heaven. And so it's the same Jesus who's doing and He's teaching and ministering to us, but there's a difference now. And so the difference happens at the watershed event of the ascension. And we're going to talk more about that at the end of this text, verses 9 to 11. But look at verse 3. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he pre presents himself alive. And he gives these proofs. He, what does he do? He eats with them. He walks around with them. He, he talks with them. They touch him. He's saying, hey, I'm not a phantom. I'm real. I'm really alive. I, I rose just like I said I would. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually here among you. And he's and, he, and while he's presenting these proofs, he's also teaching them about God's kingdom. These 40 days. Can you imagine what this was like? Have this time with Jesus after the resurrection. And so, now, 
do all of the lights come on for these guys after these by the by the time these 40 days are up? No, they don't. That's very clear by what we're going to see in starting in verse six. But they and we we still we still need Jesus continued doing and teaching. We still need the resurrected Jesus to keep on and continuing to minister to us. And he does. This is recording. This is what he continues to do. Second, the resurrected Jesus, he promises his presence with us, or you could even say in us. So verse four, and while staying with them, the idea of that even is, is it's not just he just happened to be hanging around their house. The, the idea the, in this word is the idea of, of meals. They shared meals together, fellowshipping around the table, enjoying table fellowship. While staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Remember, we at the very end of, uh, of the Gospel of Luke, we saw this exact same phrase, the promise of the Father. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. And what is Jesus? Well, this is the same thing. Luke's saying here in, in, the, in, in Acts, verse, verse 4, wait, stay. Wait for the promise of the Father. So he tells them to stay in Jerusalem. Now, knowing what we know about these disciples, what would have probably been their, kind of the reflex, their default? Would have probably been to go back to Galilee. That's where... They were from, that's where they were most comfortable. They had friends there, they had family there, had a place for refuge, shelter there. They could, they, they, it was safer there. It was more familiar to them. But Jesus says, you remain in Jerusalem. You remain in the city that killed me. You remain here where I was killed, but you remain in the city also where I was raised. And, and, and the city from which the greater son of David will one day reign. The city that is so significant in redemptive history, Jerusalem. This is where you're to stay. The, the redemptive event of the cross and the redemptive event of the resurrection, it needs to be followed by the redemptive event of the ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. So they're to stay in Jerusalem. They're to wait for something they desperately need. Not something, but someone they desperately need. And so in verse 5, John, Jesus, you notice, He's pointing them back to the very beginning. Back to the beginning of His ministry. John baptizing with water. That baptizing work that John the baptizer was doing it was all preparatory. It was pointing and preparing the way for the one who was greater than John the Baptist who was going to come. And the greater coming one is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. With the Father's promise. And so we think about often, and we sing about this so many times, and we talk about this, we think about redemption in, in terms of Jesus' death and resurrection, and, and they are really the pinnacle, that's the fulcrum, the crux of it all. But we don't always think as much about the ascension as we should, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but that's also a, a very critical redemptive event, but not, not the crux in terms of where it was accomplished, but in a sense, the crowning gift of redemption is the Holy Spirit sent from Jesus' throne. As you look in, in, in biblical, as you see how Scripture unfolds, if you have no Holy Spirit, you have no power. There's no power, there's no conversion, there's no conversion, there's no church, there's no church, there's no advancement of God's cause. And so the outpouring of the Spirit ends up being this crowning achievement of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. It is a significant and can hardly be overstated moment in redemptive history. And so Jesus is saying, you've got to wait for this. This is, this is where things have been pointing. And so the resurrected Jesus, he, he promises His presence with us, in us, by His Holy Spirit. That's what we're seeing. Because that's going to be absolutely necessary for what we are called to do. And so jump down to verse 8 real quick, and we'll get there in a moment. But they, those first hearers, the apostles, they, they and we, 
uh, are brought into this or commissioned to be Christ's witnesses starting in Jerusalem, going to the ends of the earth. But to do that, what does Jesus say? We must receive power from the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, when He has come upon you. And so we can't, we can't do it on our own. It's too great of a task. The mission's too big, but we're not left alone by Christ. That's, what, that's the assurance. Resurrected Christ, He promises His presence with us always. We see this in, in another passage, Matthew 28, where we, one of the other passages that we associate with the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then what does he say? And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're not ever alone. Christ has ascended, returned to heaven, but he's not left us. He's not abandoned us. He's present with us. How? Through the Holy Spirit. I mean, and listen, we have to be empowered by the Spirit for the task that we've been given. The apostles, listen, they were trained by Jesus for those 40 days and really for three years. But were they ready? Did they have everything they needed in themselves to do what they were called to do? Not a chance. No. Do we? And we can be enthusiastic. We can be well taught by Jesus. We can have a plan. We can have strategy. We, I mean, these apostles, they may have been rested after these 40 days and just chomping at the bit. I don't think they were. But, 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 but let's just say they were. Give them the benefit of the doubt. But they did not have the one thing, the one person they desperately needed yet. So Jesus commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem without the Holy Spirit. You've got to wait on the promise of the Father. You've got to wait on power from on high to come upon you. I mean, I thinking, I know some of you have unloaded baggage from airplanes before so maybe this will speak to you or maybe this is just a foolish illustration but I was thinking so imagine some triple seven comes and lands at Hartsfield and I don't know what the blast terminal is terminal E or something like that and and or concourse E is it I don't know F whatever the last concourse out there is and so you you the the, the plane lands and you've got this full international flight loaded down with luggage, all these missionaries coming home with all of their stuff, and I mean it's loaded to the gills with bags. And you get there and, and you're ready to unload this plane and the the conveyor belt and the, the little uh, I don't know what they call those little transport vehicles that get all the bags to the to baggage claim. It's not there yet. But you're thinking, man, we gotta get this thing unloaded. These people that got places to go. So I'm just going to start doing this. And you just start, you know, you grab a bag, you start walking it all the way to baggage claim, putting it on the baggage carousel. It's foolishness. That's, that's idiocy. Just wait. It's coming. You know, it's coming. And just wait for, wait for the right equipment. Wait for the right equipment that has the right power that's made for this to do what you're being asked to do. It's foolish to just launch out on your own and your own strength. That would be lunacy. And this is what Jesus is saying in this interview. Wait, you don't have what you need yet. You don't have it. But you will soon. And then go, get busy. That's what he's saying. So he, he promised his spirit, you know, over and over and over throughout his ministry. I mean, just in John's gospel account alone, particularly in the upper room discourse, you remember John 14 to 16. Let me just give you, you don't have to turn to these passages, but just listen. John 14, verse 16, he says, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper, Spirit, to be with you forever. He dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Verse 26 of chapter 15, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. Chapter 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. See, Jesus is saying, it's to your advantage that I go so that the Spirit can come. Wait, wait, wait. But he's coming. When he comes, go. So the apostles, the early church, they, they saw this promise of Jesus fulfilled and they and they, they lived in a unique time. And we'll talk about that as we work through uh, the book of Acts. There are some, some things that are not repeatable that we find in Acts. And so they're in this sort of transitional time associated with the birth of the church. So the Spirit came at Pentecost in Jerusalem. And then the Gospel spread. And after the Gospel spread, the Spirit spread. And so that's unique. At this, in this age, what do we find? The Spirit takes up permanent residency in a person the moment they are converted the moment they trust in Christ. And so the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus is talking about here, and that's promised by Jesus, is prophesied by John the Baptist, it takes place in believers the moment they're born again. And so the same, this is what's, this is what's amazing though. The same Spirit that is in them and is active and is working in Acts is in you, dear believer. Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus Christ, you are a recipient of the same Holy Spirit. This is, it just boggles my mind, and I, and I hope it does yours as well. The same Spirit that came down and filled Peter and James and those 120 disciples, the same Spirit that came down and convicted 3,000 people and converted them in one day, is the same Spirit Jesus sent from on high came and He dwells in you and me. The same Spirit. May God give us eyes of faith to see, brothers and sisters, to believe this. May He give us hearts that just marvel at the works and the deeds, all that Jesus is doing and teaching through His Spirit as they impact us, as they impact our world today. All that He's doing. Every time Someone is brought from death to life, spiritual death to life. It's because the Spirit is worked to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's Him opening the eyes. It's Him quickening the heart. It's Him giving the courage to those who bear witness. It's Him opening our mouths. It's Him who's testified to Jesus Christ. It's all Him. May, our, may you open our eyes, I pray, through this series that we would be better Equipped to be used by Him through His Spirit. In, in, in this world, it's perishing. And we need this empowerment of the Spirit. The first apostles needed it. Every believer since needs it just as much. We need His Spirit if there's going to be any effect in us being Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's only going to be by His Spirit. We don't have what it takes our own. Just... Just as we would, have, we would have never believed without the work of the Spirit in our hearts through the witness of someone else, so our witness of Christ would be utterly impotent without the Holy Spirit's enabling and power. A.J. Gordon, who is a 19th century preacher, he was a founder of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, he said, Now, dear friends, all missionary success at home or abroad depends upon the Holy Spirit. I say it deliberately. The personal preparation of the Holy Spirit is the greatest need in our ministry in this country and in foreign fields. It wasn't something unique to that time or something unique to the early church. That's just true always. We need the Spirit's work. And listen, we have the Spirit. He's present with us. Christ is present. He's working. He's doing. He's, he's speaking now through the Spirit. He's accomplishing. And, and so we can't witness effectively apart from the Spirit. And listen, we shouldn't even attempt to do so without even a conscious dependence upon the Spirit. We ought, to, we ought to better grasp and apprehend how reliant we are upon the Spirit. If Baraka will ever see the rapid advance of the gospel in this community in Fayette and Clayton counties and Coweta counties and Henry County and wherever else you folks live, if it's ever going to happen, it will be because the Spirit is working. All the glory goes to Him. So we are dependent. Third, 
The resurrected Jesus, he clarifies his mission for us. Clarifies his mission for us. So starting in verse 6, there's this interesting exchange between Jesus and his disciples. It it starts with this question from the disciples. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now there are there are Bible scholars and commentators who are just ready to pounce on the disciples at this point. I mean, they they just have a heyday. <coughs> Excuse me. Even John Calvin, he said of, of this question, he said, there are as many errors in this question as words. <laughs> That's pretty strong. But in particular, they, people jump on their case because they're asking about this earthly kingdom for Israel. And, and clearly, listen, they, they still don't get it fully. That's, that's the question. But Jesus, notice, he doesn't correct the notion that Jesus one day would restore the kingdom to Israel. That's not his correction. It's, he corrects their obsession with the timing of that restoration. Their, their focus is on when it's going to happen. That's what their question is about. And so it's not totally from left field even. They, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God for these 40 days. He's been talking about the kingdom and, and, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And listen, Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy makes it very clear that those two things are vitally connected. The outpouring of the Spirit and the coming of the kingdom. And so it's natural to, to equate the coming of the Spirit with the coming of the kingdom and the restoration of the nation of Israel. Those things are connected in Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah and Joel and elsewhere. And so the Messiah will, in fact, rule over Israel. There will be a future earthly an eternal kingdom. If the disciples were totally wrong on that point, this would have been the opportunity for Jesus to say, oh, you guys, face palm, you just don't get it. Let me start over. No, 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 no. Those promises are gone. Those are done. No, but He doesn't do that. Jesus' correction is about their desire, this obsession to know the timing of it. So He, he recalibrates their thinking. He refocuses their redirects their focus. Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Basically, with respect to timing, he's saying, it's a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know this. It's not for you to know, don't get worked up about times, about length of time, or seasons, about different intervals of time, different critical periods and movements. Don't Don't start trying to read times and and, and determine timetables and obsess over those things. God has fixed certain events in their timing, and it's not for you to know when. Then there's this adversative in verse 8, that little word, but. And so Jesus is now, with that word, redirecting their focus to, to what they, to what we do need to know. He says, but right now, God's purpose is the spread of the gospel around the world through the Spirit's empowerment of your witness. That's, that's what you need to give. That's the real need of this present age. Right now, we have a job to do. It's to join in God's ongoing mission of the Gospel spread to our neighbors and to the nations. So verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here it is. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The apostles and those who go after them, the, us. This, we, are, we are folded into the mission of our, the ongoing mission of our triune God as witnesses. That's, that's the mandate. We're Christ's agents in this ever-expanding spread of the gospel. Certainly, those words are specifically and first aimed at those apostles that first hear those first hearers but as you see throughout the book of acts as we'll see throughout the book this is exactly what they do the, the gospel extends from jerusalem throughout the known world i mean acts chapter 1 verse 8 is is the key verse to the book of acts it's the basic outline for everything else we're going to see in the book of acts but these words listen just like those prophecies of psalm 72 uh, are, are too big for david they are these words here, they're really too big for the apostles alone. This, this isn't just their mission. You, this is your mission, you twelve, and you accomplish this. No, this is, this is the singular mission. This is the ongoing mission of our triune God. And this is the new phase that's opened up for the apostles first, 
and then through the church to go on with this. This is, this is God's mission that began in Jerusalem with the apostles and it continues to the present day through the church, through us. And, and notice a few things about this, this mission. It is first, it's verbal. He says, you will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness speaks. As Jesus' witnesses, we tell the truth about Christ. We say what we've heard. We, we've heard something. We've seen something. Now we say something. We tell, we tell what we've seen and heard about Jesus. Our, our most fundamental purpose, mission, it's verbal. It's a verbal one. And we're testifying to the truth of Jesus Christ. If you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, you don't just become a witness. You are a witness of Jesus Christ. That is, the question is simply, how vocal are we as Christ's witnesses? And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. So it's a, it's a verbal mission. Second, it's a universal mission. Universal. It's not just a local, regional task. It, it starts in Jerusalem, but the ends of the earth are in Jesus' sights. And listen, we can praise God for that because we are essentially the ends of the earth when, in terms of the perspective of this verse being written. And so Jesus absolutely explodes their vision and ours about God's purpose for the world. It's so big. It's universal. And then third, I would just say, it's, it's this outward and expanding mission. It, it, it's, it, the mission of the church is to go out to the nations. Jesus doesn't say, hey, this is what you need to do. Just hunker down in Jerusalem, kind of set up base camp, invite the nations to come to Jerusalem, and you just get ready in case they show up. It's not what he says. He says, no, move out. Go. Go to them. This is the heartbeat of God that I pray continues to grow and, and pulsate within this local fellowship. That our posture shouldn't be just come and see, but go and tell, testify, bear witness. And we don't just go to those pockets of people in the world that we can relate to and people that are kind of like us, look like us, act like us. No, our witness must extend to those who would even seek to harm us. I mean, even in Jerusalem, the disciples are to be first witnesses in Jerusalem. This is where Jesus has just been rejected and brutally killed and unjustly murdered. And then our witness is also to extend to those that we've been taught to despise. They were also to bear witness in Samaria. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And it was a feeling that was very mutual between the two people groups. Here, Jesus says, let's go, let's go. Into Samaria. So the impulse of the church should always be to expand the gospel's reach. To go, to go, to go. To go with the gospel. Paul says to the Romans, is the power of God, the salvation to everyone who believes. And so this gospel's expansion, it, it continues past Acts, even into today and beyond us. Listen, brothers and sisters. The task is not finished until Christ returns. This same mission, this ongoing mission of our triune God, it remains. And others will continue to be folded in as Christ witnesses. By God's, again, by God's sovereign grace and mercy, the gospel came to us through this outward and ex outward expansion and spread. It came to, to, to us because they're driving us to see it keep going, to see it spread and to transform lives in our communities, to see it reach into homes and to, to reach the lives of people around us who haven't yet heard, who haven't yet believed. Is that compulsion in us? Are we gripped by that, that mandate of Christ? Or have we, if we're honest, begun to make Christianity a relatively private, personal thing? A little, a little bit self-focused and, and turned in on ourselves. And so Essentially, Christianity is about me getting what I need for my family and for my own life, and my own happiness, and my own safety, and my own comfort, and my own pleasantness, and just kind of making it in this world. It's kind of therapeutic version of Christianity. Are we, or are we compelled to see, no, I, 
I need to think outside. I need to be looking outward. I want to be, be faced outward to, to upward to the Lord and outward to the people around me. I need Christ. There's a book. I know I've referenced this book before and quoted different parts of it, but there's a, it's an older book called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. And it's not a perfect book, but there are, some I think, some compelling arguments that he makes and evaluating the, the church. And, and he says he's talking about just this natural tendency that churches have as they, as they go along to become more turned in on themselves, a little more ingrown. Uh, rather than focus outwardly on the gospel's expansion. And so he gives some common characteristics of what he calls an ingrown church. And one of those is, is in, he calls a misdirected purpose. And this is what he says, the controlling purpose in the ingrown church has to do with survival. It's not with growth through the conversion of the loss. In the churchly club, the members are attempting to defend traditional group values in the face of outsiders who are perceived as likely to subvert their traditions. The danger is that eventually the church will make its own life programs and traditions its object of worship. That's, that's, I think that's a, a good, it should give us some pause. It's not that we are not defending the truth and defending, there, there is a defensive posture that we always have as a church, but what is our purpose? It's not survival. It's to go. It's to be Christ's witnesses. It's to make disciples of the nations. What a, what a mission. This, this, our triune God is on this ongoing mission, even to today, that's continuing to go on. And listen, brothers and sisters, we are by grace. We're folded into that and aligned to that as His witnesses. That's, that's quite a privilege. And then lastly, I'll say, and I'll be brief here, the resurrected Jesus, He ascends to reign over us. We could add, and He's coming back, because this is what, how, how Jesus ends here, the, uh, how the passage ends. Again, Acts, it's the story of, of Jesus' work going on, His mission continuing. He's still building His church. He's still calling His sheep. He's still gathering worshipers from every nation, tribe, and, and tongue. Again, it's the story of what Jesus continues to do and teach. Acts, or Luke volume 2, we could say. But there is a change. There's a scene change. And we talked about this. There's this hinge that between Jesus' earthly ministry and His heavenly ministry. And what is that hinge? It's the ascension. And so verse 9, And when He said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. He didn't just disappear, poof, or vanish. No, he, the, the, the Father sent a cloud that was like His chariot that He returned to the fire. And I think that cloud and the fire that we're going to see in Acts chapter 2 has much significance. We'll talk more about it when we get there. They needed to see this with their own eyes. And verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, this same Jesus, same resurrected Jesus that now you've seen ascend to the Father that suffered and died and rose from your sins, the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, He will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. He's coming back. And I just, just for the minute we have left here, I would just say, the ascension of Jesus Christ, it's vital. It's vital for our salvation. It's vital for us as we, as we think about going out on mission together. It's absolutely critical. Our ability to carry out this missionary mandate depends on the fact that Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of God. Let me just give you a few reasons that this is necessary, that Christ ascended as we go out as His witnesses. One, we, it, it's, He ascended so that we can know that the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, that the one who was bloodied and beaten and, and, and downtrodden and unjustly murdered, this one the one who was born in this lowly manger is in fact King of kings and Lord of lords. He is, he is King. The one who commissions us, He does in fact have all authority in heaven and on earth. And the ascension testifies to this fact. He's King. We need the ascension as we go out because we need Jesus' heavenly intercessory ministry for us. 
when we when we face hardships and experience setbacks and suffer persecution and all for the gospel's sake, we can be absolutely, absolutely assured of his care for us and of his constant prayer for us because he's ascended to the Father. We we need the ascension because because, again, we need the Holy Spirit. And I've already labored to make this point, but we are powerless without him. The gospel is unhindered, though, with the spirit. And Jesus said, unless I go, he can't come. Fourth, we need the we need the ascension because we need union and communion with God through Jesus Christ. We, we, we live as these strangers in this hostile world. We're pilgrims in a foreign land. And, and, and yet, and yet present tense, we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places because Jesus has been exalted and we are we are uh, and that's all by virtue of our union with Christ. So we have this dual citizenship that we already enjoy and it's because Christ has ascended. And then last, I would say, this is not the last, but this is the last I'll give you. Reason the ascension is necessary because because it's necessary for the ultimate vindication of Christ in his death. And what I mean is it, is it Jesus it means that Jesus' sacrifice for sin has been fully accepted by the Father. Hebrews 10 makes this case. Christ, verse 12, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and then what? He sat down at the right hand of God. Listen, as we go out to bear witness for Christ, as we proclaim forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, as we proclaim that full atonement has been made for all who put their trust in Jesus Christ, we can confidently proclaim that because... The ascension guarantees that Christ's life, death, resurrection, all of that was enough to make full atonement with God and to reconcile us to God. So the gospel we proclaim has power. Ascension tells us this. Listen, we'll talk, we'll see. We we can think of all kinds of reasons if we're honest. We're probably having this conversation in our own head right now. And maybe you'll have this over the dinner table. All kinds of reasons why we cannot or we should not live like sent ones. I can. I have all kinds of excuses that I may not verbalize publicly, but I think them. All kinds of reasons why I who have been saved and set apart to be Christ's witnesses, why, why, why I don't need to do that right now. Live like that. I don't feel called to this. I have too much on my plate right now. I don't know enough. I have too many issues of my own. I'll, I'll start once I get my own stuff taken care of, my, my own life in order. As real as these may be, Jesus' mandate doesn't come with an exception clause. God made you the way you are, and He placed you where you live. He's provided, and He will continue to provide everything you need to live out your identity as His sent one. with With the composition of who you are, and the experiences that you've had, and your past. He's to make disciples where you are. He's, he's with you by the Holy Spirit. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is not hindered. And Jesus calls us then to look at the people around us and open our hearts in love and open our mouths to speak and witness of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, only God by His Spirit can ultimately open their eyes and change their hearts so that they look to Jesus by faith our task is simply to love them, to point them to Christ and, and to who came to seek and save the lost, just like he saved us. Now, church, I, along with our elders, as we've been taught, we were talking this fall and continue to pray and think we have a, a, another elder planning time this, this coming Friday night, Lord willing. And we are going to be planning and praying and thinking along these lines and praying for our church. I know you also, you join in this. Uh, you, you have big hopes and you have big prayers for us as a church, even as we start this study of the book of Acts. Uh, our confidence, though, I hope, it's, not, it's certainly not in this preacher's ability to make some compelling case, to be this great motivator. That's not my hope. I hope it's not yours, because you're going to be disappointed. My hope is not in a sermon series. It's not it. It's not, it's not in some new strategy that we're going to discover. We're going to read this book. We're going to learn this this new program. No, it's not. Our trust is in the Lord and our prayer is one of desperation for Him to work in us and to revive us. He's able to do more than we even know to ask or think. 
And so we have big hopes. And it can be tempting to, to, to try and create and to manipulate uh, the change that we think we is important and that we want to see in the church. And that is so dangerous. Sadly, the way we often try to do this as preachers is we use guilt. We use law. We, we, we issue these commands. Listen, the law is a terrible motivator. It, 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 it condemns. It does not give life. It doesn't promote life and vitality. Guilt gives this, it can give this, it can give instant results uh, that fade very quickly when we use guilt. We know this as parents, don't we? Because we, if we're honest, we do this a lot. But it's insufficient for real change. And so I pray that our going, our disciple making, our renewed resolve that we have as a church to glorify God by making disciples of Christ at home and abroad. Nothing new, nothing that we've not already committing ourselves to, but that we're just recommitting ourselves to this again and again and again because this is who we are. This is who God has called us to be. To be this, I pray that it will be gospel-motivated going. That we would better apprehend the full measure of grace that we've all received freely in Christ and that He is the one who now commissions us to go as joyful heralds. Not guilt-laden, not, oh, I didn't do my assignment this week. Not that, but proclaiming this free free offer of salvation by faith to all who would believe. He would grow that in us. The apprehension of our grace in Christ, and that would compel us to go and to proclaim this message to others. We're going to sing in a moment. For by grace... We have been saved, and it's by grace we shall proclaim to the corners of the earth that Christ has come. That's what we want to see. Let's pray. Lord, would you do this and more in us as a church? Again, we, we are, we're, we're not looking to um, the power of, of a statement and the way that it's worded, our, our confidence in going, our confidence in been motivating us and one another to go it's it's the holy spirit so we need your work lord Uh, would you work in us even as we sing these words that it would be encouragement to our souls to, to drive these truths that we've considered this morning even deeper down into our hearts we pray in jesus name amen